Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each podcast, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment agencies. Topics covered include IR35, protecting your recruitment business and the different challenges facing the recruitment industry. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners looking for expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Limited Podcast another in our series and for those of you who haven't listened before um, do please subscribe and check out our earlier podcasts as well. I'm delighted to be joined again today by Simon Whitehead, Managing Partner of HRC Law. Uh, Simon's an employment lawyer who has particular expertise in the recruitment sector. Hello Simon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great. Simon's been giving us some invaluable input about the law. I would like to talk today about a practical situation that leaves a lot of uh, recruiters with steam coming out their ears. So they've been um, engaged to recruit permanently or on a temporary basis for a client. And um, they go ahead, they may search the market, they may use their database. But at the end of the day, they submit CVs. And when they follow those CVs up with the client, the client responds, oh, thanks very much, but we already know that candidate. Now, um, frustrating as it is, um, a lot of recruiters throw in the towel and think there's nothing they can do. But um, there are, in fact, many different scenarios behind that one. Uh, Scenario A is where the clients received the CV from another agency already. Uh, Scenario B, where a client, and it does happen, may actually be trying to subvert the terms and cut the agency out, and they're going to just make a direct approach um, to the candidate via LinkedIn. Uh, And there's even scenario three, where where having sent a CV, the client becomes aware that they do in fact know that candidate, They just haven't done anything about that knowledge, but they assume that because they had prior knowledge um, that the agency doesn't have a claim on that placement. So uh, there's a little bit of scene setting. Mm. Simon, um, your advice to recruitment business owners um, on, first of all, how they deal with that situation, and perhaps then we could have a look at preventative measures they might take. I think in all of those different scenarios, the starting point will be, well, let's look at the contract. Um, let's look at the terms of business that you've got in place between um, yourself and your client, person to whom you supply the candidate to. And really, let's have a look at how you've defined introduction. Because the way all recruiters' terms work is that you're entitled to charge your fee um, on the back of, or, or contingent recruitment, I should say, uh, works on the basis of um, you can charge a fee once a, a valid introduction has been made. And it's one of those areas, surprisingly, where there isn't masses of case law. Um, They tend to to get into a county court scenario because of the value, and they don't tend to get appealed. Um, But certainly, if you look at the cases that we do know about, and the ones that I've been involved with myself, then the big thing that comes out of those decisions really is 
the introduction's got to be something more than just sending a CV through. So, um, you know, if your definition of introduction is just the supplying of a CV and you've not done anything else to facilitate um, the appointment of the candidate that you've provided, then there is an increased risk. I won't say that in every situation a judge is not going to award in your favour because they have and they will. Um, but you know you would want to be seeing normally something more than just simply surviving a CV. So supplying a CV, arranging the interviews, being involved in the supply of that particular candidate. Um, and if your terms work, then that's the first hurdle that you've got over. Because time and time again, you'll get the terms of business sent through and the definitions won't work together. So introductions been doctored or messed around with and then the clause has been changed. Um, someone's tweaked it because they think it'll look better or a client might have asked for it to be tweaked or someone's just decided actually we're going to have a go at, at, at messing around with them. And time and time again, what you find is that they don't work properly. Mm. So if you will fail at the first hurdle, if the contract that you've supplied, um, that you're doing your business on, if you like, isn't tight enough, isn't properly drafted. If you can get over that first hurdle and it all makes sense and it all works in the circumstances, then the next thing is to look at have you brought your contract to the attention of the client? You know, have you um, just attached it to the first email that went over? Have you had a conversation with the client and agreed terms and signed it in a meeting? It's unusual, but it does happen. Um, because the next bit really is about evidencing that those are the terms that govern your relationship with your client. And, you know, having it on um, the email that goes over basically saying, look, send it over my CV, here are my terms of business. Um, if you open the CV, then you accept our terms of business, can be seen to be sufficient. Obviously, as a solicitor, I will always say to you, the best situation is where you've got your terms signed because there can be no dispute then about what terms were incorporated into your relationship. Um, Email and electronic communication generally has made it easier to track and audit and a lot of the um, uh, CRM uh, software that recruiters use obviously again provide a nice audit trail to show the terms that are being uh, used and engaged with but time and time again you see a situation and certainly it'd be the easiest thing for the client to kick back on and say well I've never seen those terms, don't have any idea. Um, again. The courts can look at speculative CVs um, in a sort of a detrimental way. I mean, there are GDPR issues and lots of other issues with just sending a speculative CV through. Um, but ultimately, if that's all you've done is send a speculative CV, then there is a higher risk that a judge may say, well, actually, that isn't sufficient. Um, there isn't been sufficient agreement of the terms to, to enforce them in the way that you'd want to. So once you've got the terms make sense and the um, the terms have been incorporated and agreed by the client and, and form the basis of your relationship, then you need to start looking at the specific scenarios that you've outlined. So in a situation where the, the client has received the same CV from two agencies, um, that is a difficult one in reality. The reality of the situation is that it's a commercial negotiation really between the two agencies as to um, a deal to be agreed if you like. Um, you know, is it 70-30 splits? Has someone done more of the work in getting that candidate placed than just simply sending a CV through? And the other thing to note there is that the REC in their, if you're a member of the REC, in their code of conduct have some specific rules around how those sorts of disputes should be 
um, dealt with to ultimately make sure that the sector and the industry doesn't get a bad name. So, Are we referring there to things like right to represent and securing that from candidates? Yes, and but more specifically there is some guidance that the REC have in their code of conduct about if you're in a dispute with another recruiter, mm-hmm. how you should handle that dispute. And that's very fact sensitive, but you need to refer back to that and look at how that would apply if you're an REC member. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really you're into, into the evidence then. So in a situation where a client has perhaps tried to subvert the, the terms of business and asserts that they know them in some way, um, it's a matter of what's the evidence. So a case that I had not so long ago was um, very senior accountancy candidate sent through to um, a top accountancy firm. The fee was a significant fee, as you can imagine. Um, and it landed on the desk of someone in this particular accountancy firm and they woke up and went, oh, actually, I went to university with this person and then basically contacted them and um, appointed them. And, you know, we were able to show in that case that actually for 20 years there'd been no contact between these two university buddies. Right. But very clearly, uh, once he'd been triggered, then he sort of tracked him down on LinkedIn sort of said hello, met him for a coffee. So we were able to show via the evidence that actually it was the CV was the, that was the, um, the spark, if you like, that ultimately caused the appointment to, to happen. And that was the causative link, if you like. Um, and that settled before going to trial. So in your view, if a client's saying, I am taking that candidate forward, but not through you because I already knew them, is it reasonable for a recruiter to ask the client for evidence of that? It's going to be a bit of a commercial decision because as a recruiter providing a service, you don't necessarily want to fall out with your client. Um, so at an early stage, it's probably worth finding your way around it. And really what I'd say to a client is, look, if you, the decision is that you don't trust that client anymore and that you don't want to work with that client anymore because of the fear that they're just going to do this again in the future, then the reality is you can take the gloves off at that point. If it's part of a bigger relationship, commercial relationship, then unfortunately the recruiter's going to make a commercial decision about how far they push that. But certainly I think if you're prepared to um, stand up for yourself and to push it forward, um, and you know, some clients will say, look, you know, I think commercially that's the right thing to do as well, because if we roll over on this, then we'll be rolling over on everything. And if we assert our position, then it will um, recalibrate the negotiating position or the, the, the trust and confidence between us. That's the decision you've got to make, and if the decision is, you know what, I'm, we're going to take it forward, then absolutely, mm. um, you know, basically put them on notice. And the reality is, it may take more than just a letter to them to get that information. But the reality is, if you fast forward to saying, right, okay, I'm going to issue proceedings in a court to recover my fee that I'm entitled to, then part of the, that those proceedings will be disclosure, and part of the disclosure process will be exactly that, because really what the defence, if you like, of the of the client is, well, um, the recruiter wasn't the cause for this appointment. Yes. So they will have to demonstrate to the judge what was the cause, because on the face of it, they've received a CV from a recruiter and they've now made an appointment. If they're saying, well, actually, no, that wasn't what caused us to appoint this person, then that defence is going to have to be, here's the reasons why we say it. Right. Um, they might need some coaxing, they might need some threatening, but ultimately that's where you want to get to. You, you need to try and assess really the strength of um, their argument or their position that it wasn't because of the recruiter that they've ended up appointing that particular candidate. Um, a slightly different scenario has just sprung to mind. 
So let's imagine that, again, I've submitted that CV and I've got agreed terms with my client. And they say, um, actually, that C- we've received that CV from a another source mm-hmm. um, and we've kept it. Um, you know, we hang on to it. So we kind of do expect our clients to to respect our terms that very often say, if you hire this person within six months mm-hmm. of our introduction, you will owe us a fee. It seems therefore reasonable that if they log and keep those CVs. But how does that sit with GDPR if the candidate doesn't know that the client has kept their details? Well, that's the key really. So it depends on the basis on which you're processing the data. So ideally what you would want, and this is the problem with relying on um, sort of legitimate interest, if you like, because legitimate interest is for the purposes presumably of a particular position mm-hmm. that's vacant, that CV is being supplied for. Um, the reality is that once that position is closed, then there is no real legitimate interest for that CV to be kept. Arguably, um, depending on what stage in the process they got to, they might argue, well, we need to keep it for the purposes of defending any claim that might come as a rise of discrimination or not appointing that particular person. Um, but that's the problem with legitimate interest. Where does it end? It's quite grey, it's quite um, vague and woolly around the edges. If you've got a privacy notice, and that's the way that we always advise a client to go, is, is being more specific about it um, and you know, be very clear that this is the, your data that you're supplying to um, the client and be very clear with the candidates as to how that data is going to be treated, then you would set it out in the privacy notice and ultimately you would make it very clear in there what they could and couldn't use. So the example, if you're going to keep it, you keep it for that period of time for the purposes of defending discrimination claims. You don't keep it on your sort of little black book, if you like, of potential candidates. Like applicant tracking system or yeah, whatever. Because we're not giving you consent to hold that data in that particular way because yeah. we've not got consent from our candidates to give you that information. Ah, so that's a really good example then of why people should make sure their terms are watertight. Yeah, and, and you know, why, you know, really think about whether legitimate interest and the ease of process mm. is the right decision for your business or whether actually something more mm. um, structured may give you better protection from what ICO, GDPR perspective, but also as well from a... Uh, a marketing and a, 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 and a contract perspective as well. Mm, okay, so um, just to summarise some, some key points there. Number one, um, recruiters really do need to make sure that their terms are watertight and up to date and that clients have them brought to their attention, ideally signed. Yeah. yeah? Um, so uh, having a kind of, you know, a, a slack process for that, that, or one that's difficult to evidence, mm-hmm. isn't going to work. Um, and then think about things, uh, I think you said, Simon, in terms of the evidence trail. Yeah. If you had to prove that you had effective, been effective in making the introduction, where's the hard evidence that you did yeah. that? Uh, and, you know, that's where your CRM comes in in respect of phone calls, interview um, creation and, and, and management. And I think the other thing as well to think about is... Um, and it's not always possible, but clients are moving more to it, is, is actually the protection that a retained relationship can provide you in that situation. Yeah. Because clearly, if you've got a retained relationship, the relationship with the client is much more certain, much more concrete, and you can manage the process much more easily. As I say, not always easy to achieve, but there is an advantage from a cash flow, from a, from a business perspective, but also from a business protection perspective, of looking mm. at retained models. 
Indeed. Simon, thank you very much for your um, input and thoughts um, again. Uh, Simon is Managing Partner of HRC Law and we do appreciate him joining us. This has been the Recruitment Leadership Limited podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership podcast. If you've enjoyed our podcast, make sure you subscribe to get notifications of when the next one is available. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please send an email to alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. You can also follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time for another episode of Recruitment Leadership Podcast.